Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. This winter may feel longer than it actually is because we've been dealing with a pandemic for almost a year. How have you dealt with isolation, loneliness, and fear? And I haven't even mentioned the weather yet. Author Catherine May has written about the importance of retreating and resting, especially when life becomes difficult. In her memoir, Wintering, May writes, transformation is the business of winter. Her book focuses on the difficulties she faces in a year, one after another, including a spouse's sudden illness and then her own. It reminded me of something my mother-in-law shared with me. Bad things happen in threes. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. But what do we do when the bad outweighs the good? Society tells us, suck it up and carry on. But how many of us take time to slow down and rest in difficult times? And Catherine May joins us from England on Zoom. Catherine, so nice to talk with you today. Lovely to talk to you too. Hi. So again, we have an excerpt of Catherine's book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. The full title, Wintering the Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. I have to admit, Catherine, the first time I picked up the book, winter hadn't started yet. And I was dealing with all the stress that so many of us are under as working parents with remote school and trying to do my job. So I wasn't quite ready to read this book. And I have to congratulate you. I understand your book is among the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers. It's been on a few lists how do you feel about that amazing I can't quite believe it I think it would have blown my tiny mind had it not been locked down and so I can just tell myself that none of it's real it's fine that's how I'm coping <laughs> so I never really thought about the term wintering can you define that for us what does it mean exactly well I mean wintering's a word I've borrowed from uh, the natural sciences I suppose um it's more traditionally used to refer to the way animals and plants survive the winter and the actions they take to help get them through. But I've reused it to you to think about the times when we are wintering from everyday life. So when we're cut off from the world, feeling frozen, feeling unable to take action, perhaps feeling humiliated or rejected or perhaps suffering from an illness. So I'm gathering up all those times in life when we feel very cut off and, and like the world isn't right for us right now. So when did you start writing this book? Obviously, again, we've been in a pandemic for about a year now, but you started writing this before that. So there was a, a period of wintering in your life. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it came a couple of years ago um, around the time of my 40th birthday which I think for a lot of us is a time when mortality visits us slightly. We begin to think about being middle-aged and all of those, I don't know, those features land on our faces that we recognise from our parents. Um, and yeah, so, th so that was already on my mind. But first of all, my husband fell very suddenly and very seriously ill with a, a very terrible appendicitis that caused a massive infection. 
And then while I was sitting by his hospital bed, I realised that I'd been unwell for quite a long time too. And that increased uh, to the point when I ha I couldn't go to work anymore. And then, as you say, these, these things do come in threes. Um, <laughs> when I was just getting on top of my own illness, um, I, we had to take my son out of school for a while because he had stopped coping. So we had this perfect storm of life events that really took us right back to the bare essentials of life, I think, in lots of ways, and made me really reflect on what I was and what I wanted to be, but also put me into a space where I was surviving the best I could. So when we have, again, uh, physical conditions that keep us from doing uh, what we want to do or feeling well, uh, but you've also suffered from anxiety and depression, and you've talked about that in your book, and those are also moments of wintering, Catherine? Absolutely, yeah. I'm one of those people who's got a pattern of anxiety and depression across the whole course of my life, right from childhood, um, and had some very serious bouts, which I think have been life-threatening, realistically. And I know now that they come regularly, these winters visit me regularly and take me away from everyday life once again. But I've kind of got used to that pattern of them now, and I, I almost trust them. I almost know that they've got a narrative arc and that I can endure them. When they first started, I didn't think I could. Uh, and now I, I know and I believe that I can. And that's helped me a great deal, I think, to just know that this is a pattern that my brain falls into and that it will pass. Mm -hmm. You've been a writer for some time. And so when did you decide that this should be a book, uh, again, writing about what happened to you the year of your 40th? Yeah, well, I suppose I would... If I'm honest, I'd say that I always wanted to write a book like this. I always wanted to write a book that helped people and that, that was a guide to the, the kind of life that I've always lived and that I know loads of other people live, but that perhaps we don't talk about, you know, this life of physical and mental illness and, and the, knowing that that's a regular occurrence. But it only came to me after I had finished writing my last memoir, which was The Electricity of Every Living Thing, which was a memoir of um, me learning I was autistic when I was 39. I'm one of the many increasing number of late diagnosed women. Um, and I think after writing such an intensely personal book, I really wanted to write a book that was perhaps a little bit more general, that perhaps took a step back and helped other people to learn some of the teachings that I'd learned. And I didn't really mean to write about all the personal stuff in this one. Um, but while I was writing, it came anyway and, and kind of knocked on my door. And I tried to fight for a long time against sharing what was going on in my life. I, I really wanted to be able to write about wintering from the sunny uplands, you know, and to look back over wintering periods in my life and, and say, but look, it's okay, look at me now. And actually, that was not what was on offer to me at the time. What I had to do was write a book right from the white heat of a winter, if you like, um, from the eye of the storm. And I think probably in retrospect, that, that's what makes it quite compelling for readers, because I go into experiences that maybe I wouldn't have remembered, you know, that it's, it's a blow by blow account. And so all of the dark and dirty bits of a, a personal wintering are in there, you know, the moments of paranoia, the moments of anger, the moments of bitterness are, are all in the book, as well as the, the nice kind of, 
you know, big landscape stuff that I'd meant to write. You talk about in Wintering again, the power of rest and retreat in difficult times. Catherine May, my guest today, the author of this book, uh, you talk about that there's stigma around wintering, this idea of taking periods of rest when we're dealing with a lot of life challenges. Can you talk about how that um, manifested in your life? Mm, I think it manifests in all kinds of ways, both kind of overt and very subtle. I think we have a culture that doesn't talk about those periods or that turns away or looks on them with pity. And actually, I don't think pity is necessarily appropriate for these times. I think for me, I see them as a normal part of the life cycle and a part of the life cycle that we have miraculously ignored somehow. We, we all conspire together to pretend they're not there. I think also, you know, there are some very pressing fears that are, you know, to do with work and whether or not we will lose our jobs, lose our income, those fears of financial failure that, that become much more intense when we are admitting to maybe not being the perfect employee for small amounts of time. And also, I think there's something in our culture right now that has changed that makes it harder than ever to talk about negative experiences. And that's because of the way we're interacting on social media. You know, we're all sharing beautiful images of supposedly beautiful lives. And we forget that when we see people's Instagram feeds or Facebook feeds, that what they're showing us are the beautiful bits that comfort them, that make them feel like they're in control. They're not even necessarily trying to fool us that their life is perfect. They're probably trying to fool themselves as much as anything else. But we read those and we feel like we have to be perfect too. So we tamp down our, our darkest moments and add that to the culture of sharing motivational quotes you know <laughs> that tell you that everything's okay and you just got to be on top of things and you can do this and sometimes in truth we can't do this we can't hang on in there we can't you know put on a brave face and there's no space that we're making for that and we urgently need to do that particularly in a year like this it is interesting to see how in this last year I feel like more people have been open about uh, mm. feeling inadequate or under stress or uh, depressed and because we've been isolated for so long. And I think it's been interesting to see that, but why did it have to take uh, you know, the whole world in this <laughs> pandemic, Catherine, for us to be uh, more empathetic uh, and to understand that, that life is not linear? I really agree. I think we've seen a real outpouring of sharing this year. And although it's, you know, sharing not very nice stuff, I, it's really cheered me up to see it. I think particularly actually in terms of parenting, we have made external the stuff a lot of us hide about parenting, all the difficult bits, all the moments of frustration, all the moments when we feel like it's far too much. And I think that's a real step forward. And I hope we can carry on with that afterwards. But you're quite right, in truth, there have always been loads of us, like huge sections of our society who are facing very similar situations to this pandemic. You know, the people with chronic illness who've never been able to leave the house very much, the people who have suffered job loss, the people who have, you know, suffered severe mental health problems, the people, I could go on and on and on, 
this has always been there and it's great that we've externalized it but what we've got to fight very hard to do is not hide it all over again once this is all over because there will still be loads and loads of people suffering and struggling who will need our our care you're hearing Catherine May here on Where We Live. She's the author of Wintering, the Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. An excerpt of her book is on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, you touched briefly on the way that you start this book. You talk about your spouse's sudden illness, and then you also were ill. So can you talk a little bit more about your feelings as a mother at the time and not knowing if you had a very uh, serious condition and how that would impact not only your family but just mm. the your life plans and what you had going on at the time Catherine yeah absolutely I mean it distills all of the different fears that you might have into into one glassful that is very bitter to drink I think I mean, we'd already been through the the horrible situation of having to take my son in to visit my husband in hospital, you know, wired up to loads of machines and beeping. And that was very, very frightening. And he had, you know, already had that very real fear of seeing his father like that. So we were still recovering from that moment when I became ill. I, you know, to cut a long story short, I've got a series of serious gut problems that um you know will, will be with me forever but at the time my doctor advised me that it could well be bowel cancer mm. and that I should prepare for bad news luckily the bad news didn't come um but uh, that put so many things in my mind I mean of course every parent fears that ultimate you know horror of having to leave their child when they're young I mean that was terrifying but even when I thought about the future as I was, I was afraid of not being able to provide for him, not having the energy to you know, do all the things that he wants to do. I was afraid of being the mother who was, you know, always on the sofa and was never enough. And I could see how it affected him too. You know, he knew I was unwell. He could see I was in pain. You can't hide these things from your kids as much as you hope you can. And it brought a whole lot home. It brought a lot home about my own vulnerability, but it made me think too about how we never get to choose quite the lives that we hope we can choose. You know, we're not in that level of control that we believe we are. And it's those times when the rug is pulled from under your feet, when you really have to radically accept that I didn't get to choose this. I didn't get to make the life that I'd hoped for him but I can still make a good life and that he is learning a lot about his own reserves of compassion and how, you know, how to live with restraints. And I, I actually came to think that's very, very important. Mm. And you took time away from your job and you mentioned that your son at the time uh, was also taken out of school to help uh, with um, some coping that, that he needed to do and to get to a new school. You write all about all of that in your book, Wintering. Mm. But uh, even before uh, this particular period in your life, uh, there was a time before, before you even had your son, when you were pregnant with him, that you needed to travel and you had made plans to go to Norway. Can you talk about that trip yeah. and, and what was going on in your mind at the time? Yeah, so I, um, I'd i been, you know, very thoroughly assured that I wouldn't be able to conceive without help. Um, I have a sort of long, long-term long hormonal imbalance. And so while I was uh, on the waiting list for 
IVF treatment, I found myself pregnant, to very, very much to my surprise. And that had an interesting effect on me because actually I'd started trying for a baby early because I thought it would take so long. I'd watched other people on IVF and seen that it took five or 10 years for them to conceive and thought, okay, that's my time scale. I've got a lot to work with. Brilliant. You know, (laughs) I'm in control of this. There we go. There's that myth again. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, to everybody's surprise, I turned up at the IVF clinic pregnant, I actually went through some surprising emotions you know I was delighted to be pregnant but it was actually quite a risky pregnancy I had loads of problems with that pregnancy so it all felt very tentative anyway but also this wasn't my plan this wasn't my financial plan I didn't feel ready really and there were things that I told myself I would do before I had a child that I hadn't had a chance to do so life had kind of visited me very hard and I through, you know, I had morning sickness through my whole pregnancy. I had very high blood pressure. I had all sorts of problems. But I had this urge to travel, to do one last trip before my son came. And so I found myself negotiating with my midwife to take a trip to Norway to see the Northern Lights, which is what I'd always, always wanted to do. And it was really touch and go. She was really not sure at all that I should go. (laughs) And in the end, I had to assure her that I'd never be more than a couple of miles from a hospital. Um, And, you know, it sounds crazy when I say it now, because actually the easy thing would have been not to take that trip. But I had this urge to do one last wild thing because I knew that I'd be living with restrictions for a long time. So I did. I travelled to Tromso to go and see the Northern Lights. And uh, I'm not remotely sorry that I did. It was incredibly beautiful. It was amazing to experience the polar twilight. They'd just come out of the 24-hour darkness, but now they were having uh, only twilight instead of daylight for a few hours a day. Mm. It was incredible to see the Northern Lights. But what's more, I think I learned a lot about these societies where there's a certain hardiness and a certain acceptance of winter and a need to adapt and and change in order to cope with it because you can't fight it. Mm. In your book, you write a lot about uh, Nordic countries, their approach to the winter season. Uh, They're also countries that see um, not only a high quality of life, but more depression and alcohol. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Liz, um, I'm wondering uh, what you learned uh, in the, not only that trip, but when you've done research and talked to others uh, from these countries about how to approach the dark, the cold, uh, when yeah. life, when it forces us to take time to slow down. 
Yeah, I think Nordic countries can teach us so much about that. And we talk about them a lot and we tend to see them as these very utopian societies where everybody's very happy and life is very cosy and very wonderful. And we've got that slightly wrong. And I think a lot of Scandinavians are a bit frustrated with the focus on hygge, you know, this idea of cosiness and, and homeliness, without the counterbalance of the darkness that that responds to. Because what Scandinavians are expert at, particularly the people who are living near to the Arctic Circle or north of it, is preparing well for a hard winter and doing all they can to cope with it. Not because it's lovely, but because it is so awful and because they know that they have these huge and horrible peaks in suicide during the winter. They have, you know, terrible problems with alcoholism, addiction, domestic violence, you know, high rates of depression in the winter, high rates of anxiety. So they know that this stuff can visit them. It's not that everything is perfect and utopian, it's that everything is potentially awful. So they just have these brilliant ways of coping and that's to do with being very ready for winter and finding ways to keep themselves feeling happy and cosy and, and finding moments in their day that feels like a break. And, and that's why sauna is so important in, in the far north. Um, it's, it's not a luxury item for them. <laughs> like you it share, is for us, I think. You share a, a funny anecdote about what happened with your sauna experience. I don't want to ruin it for our listeners. I'll have to pick up the book. But going back to your trip to Norway again, you went to see the Northern Lights. This is right before your life was about to change with the the birth of your son, and you go to visit the indigenous people in Norway, the Sami. They raise reindeer, mm. and you go on the sleigh ride. I was wondering if you could read an excerpt for our listeners. Yeah, I'd love to. I think um, to to really hear this, you have to picture me in a giant ski suit. They had to they had to find me a special one because I was so pregnant. So I had this this giant ski suit on to accommodate my bump. Later, we rode in a sleigh pulled by one of them. That's the reindeer. Oh, sorry, turning the page. My own reindeer was carefully selected for its docility, but it was still a bumpy ride over the snow and around a frozen lake. All the while, sitting on reindeer skins. Afterwards, we retired to the Lavu, that's like a kind of a teepee that the Sami have, for some reindeer soup to strike back against the cold. As I finished my bowl, Trina hurried over to replenish it. You do not have your antlers, Mama Reindeer, she said, so we must fill you up with some soup instead. I brimmed with tears because she had summed up something that I couldn't articulate until now. Pregnancy made me feel as though I was missing some defence or other, and I couldn't fight for myself. The reindeer understood what was necessary to get through winter. I did not. In Tromso, I learned the extraordinary things that can flourish in the dark, cold polar night. But I also realised that no matter how hard I tried to fight them, I simply had no defence against the changes that were happening in my life. I was missing my antlers. I'd skittered over to a different country to convince myself that I could carry on just as normal, but instead, I saw only my desperation mirrored in the ice. But it was there too that I came to a kind of acceptance of my own limitations and of the future that lay before me. I learned that I was not invincible at this moment in my life, but also that it wouldn't last forever. I learned to rest and to surrender. I learned to dream. 
I took photographs that I imagined showing to some future person as yet unknown to me and saying, look, here you are under the Northern Lights. Few of us inherit the rich and complex mythologies that the Sami pass on. The sense of the world being alive around us and of ancestors keeping a gentle watch, residing in the very rocks we stand on, the very wind that buffets us. Most of us have to make our own, if we think we do it at all. In my time under the Aurora, I thought of the first gift of mythology that I could pass on to my son, the seed of his own personal law. You, who were so strong that I sometimes thought you'd overcome me entirely, crossed the Arctic Circle before you were even born. <laughs> and I did. I have shown him the picture. <laughs> I've shown him the picture of himself in my tummy under the Northern Lights. I love showing him that picture. It's really special. And what's his reaction? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. He's not so impressed. He doesn't know what it means, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but he does still have the little polar bear that um, that I bought him there. So that's always really mm. nice. That's Catherine May, author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. My guest today here on Where We Live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll continue talking about uh, her book after the break and also her tips for us uh, who are wintering. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Everyone hits low points in life, but author Catherine May shares in her memoir ways she has weathered stressful periods. Her memoir is called Wintering, the Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. You can read an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. So we've been wintering, whether it's the season, New England winter here, Catherine, or when we think about this last year and this pandemic. So what are some of your I guess, tips or suggestions for people as we are forced to slow down, to take time for ourselves uh, as we winter? Well, I mean, I think the biggest tip really from me would be to accept the winter that's happening to you. I think that's the thing that gets the most in our way, really. This problem we have with really acknowledging that we're in trouble, you know, that we're struggling, that we're in a period of our lives when nothing's working. And, and that might be either because of the snow or because of the pandemic or because something completely different or everything at once. And, you know, that acceptance means so many things. It means that we might be able to ask for help that we need. It means that we might be able to make some adaptations because we're taking ourself and our needs seriously, you know, and by adaptations, I mean, you know, we might be able to give up on some commitments and, and, and make a bit more space to have a rest, for example. But I think most of all, it means that we can look what's going on in the eye and let the change that's happening actually happen to us rather than keep flinching away from it. I think quite often the flinch away from pain or from difficulty or from distress is the thing that causes us the most distress. When we can learn to 
walk with dark feelings and to hear them and to listen to what they're telling us because they're all instructive then we've got this possibility of making a change that lets us cope in the next phase of our life if if we're not managing at the moment i think that's really important you write wintering is usually involuntary lonely and deeply painful and so we we don't want to do this unless until we're forced to catherine <laughs> no, well, but maybe we should do. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? We all wait until winter absolutely overtakes us. We all wait until the blizzard has happened and our front door is under six feet of snow. And if we could possibly learn to recognise our winters a tiny bit earlier, to see them coming and to accept that they're a normal part of our life cycle, then we might avoid the worst ravages of them. And I think that was very true for me. You know, if I could have, I mean, goodness me, gone to the doctor about my health problems six months earlier, for example, um, then maybe it wouldn't have been so devastating when that illness came. Maybe I would have been able to, you know, stay in my job, for example. Although I have to say that's one of the huge insights of wintering, that often we're forced into change through wintering that we absolutely resist and don't want after that change has happened, we integrate it. And now I look back and think, I'm so glad I had to leave that job. <laughs> like I really, I really, really needed to move on from that. It really wasn't serving me. It was really making my life very hard. But I had to be dragged there kicking and screaming. And I think if we could all get to a place where we didn't have to be dragged there kicking and screaming, when we could still make decisions rather than be forced into them, then that's that's how we begin to get hold of winter. We focus some time talking about a wintering, uh, this power of rest and retreat uh, after, say, a physical health condition or a mental health uh, crisis. But what about when we talk about death, uh, Catherine? I was thinking as I read your book, you know, I've been open about this on the show, but when my parents passed away, you know, I, I really struggled with that that um, mm. time of grief. And I think part of that was because of how people uh, approached me. And I think that goes back to when we think about culture and, and anticipating that people just, things, bad things happen and you get over it and move on. But grieving yeah. is a process, it takes time. And some people understand mm. that and some do not. And it, it does lead to difficulties when you're dealing with it yourself. And trying to figure out, well, how do I keep going when I, it's not just I can flip the switch and be better and be back mm. to where I was. Oh, my goodness. And there is somewhere where we've really lost ground, isn't it? Because 100 years ago, we would have recognized grief as a process. And we would have made space for it. I mean, think back to, you know, the Victorian practice of wearing black for a year. I mean, maybe that seems very excessive to us now, but at least that acknowledged and externalized grief. Whereas now we treat people grieving as if they're inconvenient, their feelings are inconvenient. And they have to, yeah, as you say, kind of get on with it. And when you're grieving, you can't, you know, it, it comes and bites you. Random times, I, I, I'm guessing you found that too. I know that was my experience of grief. I've been, funnily enough, I've been writing about this a little bit lately, um, about when uh, I lost my grandmother when I was 17, and I was very, very close to her. I'd grown up um, living in her house. And so to me, she was like a, she wasn't, I wouldn't even call her a second mother. She was like another mother. And when she died, 
my grief was completely denied because she was my grandmother. And so people said very openly to me, well, she's only your gran. Everyone loses their grandparents. And it was brutal. And I remember very clearly that feeling of, of knowing that I wasn't allowed to grieve and that I was embarrassing people if I spoke about my grief. And that I wasn't even allowed to talk positively about her because it was seen as kind of dwelling on the past. It was, you know, and I I don't think I had a very uncommon experience there. Mm. I mean, my goodness, in this coming year and the year after, there are going to be so many people grieving. We are going to have to get the hang of this a bit better and we're going to have to make space for grief and we're going to have mm. to make space to memorialise, you know, the the passing of so many people and I, I mean, I'm, I'm a natural optimist, but I hope that that will bring about a change in us and bring about bigger patterns of how to acknowledge grief, because we have, we have lost that. I'm so sorry that you had such a bad experience mm. with your parents dying. It's horrible. Thank you, Catherine. Catherine May is our guest today here on Where We Live. Her book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Throughout your book, Catherine, you talk uh, about your ventures in nature, whether it's taking a polar swim or traveling to Norway uh, to to get away uh, before the birth of your son uh, to help you with your thinking at the time. But I can talk more about how nature plays a part in our respite and retreat. Mm, I, for me, I think it's absolutely vital. And I think it could be vital to everybody if they can find the part of nature that they love. I mean, nature is such a great teacher for how to live through difficult times. You know, once a year, it goes through a period of scarcity. And if we watch it closely, we see that, yes, you know, I mean, to take the example of a tree for, you know, they pair themselves back to the very basics of existence in order to survive. But they find a sparse beauty in that time and they dig deep and they are the life and soul of the forest while that's happening. And then they flourish again when times get easier. And I think that's such a great lesson for us that we can do that too. You know, we can go through hard times when we feel cut back to the quick. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't come back, you know, it's sometimes even stronger afterwards. I also, I spent some time with a hibernating dormouse when I was researching the book. Um, <laughs> and I never realised that Americans don't have dormice. I'm, I'm sorry for you that you don't have dormice because they are it the cutest cute. possible thing. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. They're like a little fluffy hamster, um, but with a tail. Um, and I, like I, you know, we all read about hibernation as children. I think it's, it's kind of part of the folklore of childhood. Um, but what I didn't realise when animals hibernate is that they they drop their body temperature to just above freezing. And so when you hold a hibernating dormouse, it's ice cold in your hand, but at the same time still squishy. So it's clearly alive. And it really, I don't know, it made something click in my brain about exactly what it is that these creatures do to survive. You know, this isn't snuggling up in a cozy bed it is really going as far as you can possibly go to not burn any energy so that you can live through this this period of food scarcity that would otherwise finish you off and yet 
isn't that, I mean, that's not, when we look at that, we don't think, oh, that's terrible. We think, God, that's remarkable. <laughs> and I think we need to learn to do that for humans too. When we watch humans in an act of survival, we really need to learn to look at them mm. and say, wow, this is people at their most majestic right now. They're, they're coping, they're surviving, they're just about getting through and we should honour that. When we think about wintering, I wanted to acknowledge that, you know, that can be a privilege for some uh, that that um, mm -hmm. we're able to maybe take the time uh, to rest, uh, especially during difficult times. And, and we know that's not the case uh, uh, for many. I mean, how should we approach that when we think about not only the stigma surrounding wintering, but the fact that uh, not everyone has this time to take? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been very much highlighted this year when we've seen, you know, wealthier people still suffering in the pandemic, but nevertheless suffering with a, a big garden to hang out in, for example, or, a, you know, a holiday home to go to. You know, the world is incredibly unfair. But the problem with this issue of wintering is that it's not always a choice, that often if we avoid it, it takes you know, a form that that is no longer a choice. You know, we get so sick that we can't work. We become so depressed that we're unable to function. You know, our lives fall apart. We lose relationships. We lose jobs. You know, all of those awful things happen to us. And so what we need to do is take these ideas of self-care away from its association with luxury and into the basics of looking after yourself. You know, if you are ill, you need to cut back on as much as you possibly can in order to let your body rest. And that means, you know, making some really difficult decisions about not going to certain events and things like that in order for you to be able to do the things that you can do. It means that when you're suffering you need to take care of yourself you need to make sure you're still eating you're still getting dressed you're still washing I mean th these are the basics that we're talking about really this is not about going for a massage and lighting a scented candle as lovely as those things are it's it's about really really pairing back to to what we need and I mean there's a big there's a big change that needs to happen here isn't there that when people are in this period of crisis, we, we've got to create a world that means they don't lose absolutely everything. And in order to do that, we need to recognise that this is going to happen to absolutely everybody somewhere along the line. And yeah, I, I wish I could solve that one. Catherine May is my guest today on Where We Live. She's written the book Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. You can read an excerpt on our website npr.org slash where we live. We'd love to hear from you how you're wintering, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Today, my guest from England, Catherine, Catherine May, author of Wintering, the Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. She's joining us on Zoom today as we talk about her book. I'm wondering how you've been wintering the past few months. I, I definitely want to ask you about the polar swims that you've taken. <laughs> Yeah, so I, uh, during the course of writing the book, I got invited to take my co- first cold water swim. Um, it wasn't actually my first. So I used to take part in an annual sea swim that we have at New Year in Whitstable, where we all, you know, like run into the water, scream, run out again, then have a bacon sandwich, you know, <laughs> and congratulate ourselves. Um, but this was a little bit different. This was a group that was trying to form to swim all the year round. And at first, it was only me and someone else that turned up and it took massive courage to get into the water and I got in and thought I was going to die and ran out again (laughs) but um, after that I swam every day I was determined to get the hang of this but I also had this kind of sense of real euphoria that that came after I got out of the water and I realized I'd survived it and so I could survive it again so the first time I got into the the water there was snow on the beach you know only a tiny bit we don't get much snow in, in Whitstable um, but yeah, it was it was pretty challenging and I've learned to love it. I've been swimming every winter for three years now. Um, this year I've been a bit curtailed. I've had some problems with my ears. It's been a bit challenging. And also because of lockdown, our, the rules of our lockdown mean that we can't meet in groups. And I've realised that one of the huge benefits for me of cold water swimming is doing it together and being brave together and being resilient together. And the, the kind of lovely conversations that open up when you're freezing cold in the water because it really loosens your tongue. But <laughs> I will I think I'll always swim through the winter, maybe not as as regularly as I do now, but I absolutely adore it. It, it just gives me this enormous sense of peace and well-being that I just don't get anywhere else. It's interesting when we think about uh, how some of us like to get away. We think of warm climates and sitting on the beach, <laughs> you're drawn to uh, swimming in the ocean when it's cold. Have you always been drawn to the cold, Catherine? Yeah, I have. I, I'm a real winter lover, um, but also I hate the heat too. So it's it's kind of aversive too. I, I'm always trying to cool down. Um, and it's definitely why I live by the sea. I didn't grow up by the sea. And I moved here in my late 20s, um, partly because I love getting into the water, cooling down. I love blustery days on the seafront. I love it when the waves are really wild. And whenever I can, I get down to Devon and the southwest of the country where it's even wilder and even colder. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, part of my personality. I, I come from a family of sun worshippers and I'm this strange, I was this strange little child who was always too hot and always wanted to be out in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> my producer, Tess, just uh, suggested we have a team cold water swim. I'm not sure if I'm there yes. yet. Yes. <laughs> Yes, maybe I'll, I'll put that I on. I will <laughs> be there to support you in an online capacity. <laughs> this has been a, a remarkable year, and again, you had no idea when you're when you're writing this book that uh, this would come out at a time where we all needed to read something uh, like this in a pandemic. Uh, what have you been hearing from readers and people who have shared the wintering in their lives, Catherine? Oh, so much. I I get the most beautiful letters. And do you know what's really interesting is, yes, we we say a lot like the book came in a year when people needed it. But actually, the letters I get revealed that people would have always needed it. You know, Mm. 
there's all kinds of hidden struggles that are going on. I mean, even today, I've had a letter from a man whose daughter recently had a car accident and he's read the book while she's recovering and, and it's helped him to process his fears about what her future will be. I've had correspondence with somebody who's undergoing cancer treatment, uh, talking to people who are bereaved. I mean, actually, we all needed to talk about these times, however they come. And it helps definitely that we can all frame it around a pandemic. But in fact, the, this stuff has always been happening. It's, it's just very under the surface. How is your son doing? You talk about, again, uh, his um, struggle with school. You took him out for a part of the time and you found a new school for him. But I'm wondering how you approach wintering uh, with your son and the conversations that you had. Well, it was quite interesting because when the pandemic, you know, arrived and we knew that schools were going to close, he and I were like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> we've Between us, we've got a kind of vocabulary now. I mean, he's, he's really happily settled in a new school. Um, and it means that we can talk about struggles in a different way. It doesn't stop the struggles from happening, incidentally. You know, this isn't like a a cure-all but it does mean that we that he and I have a have a way of talking about it between us and I mean one of the things we learned when we were homeschooling was to be able to both admit when things were going wrong when things hadn't gone as planned you know we we just kind of can look at each other now and say well that went well didn't it and shrug and laugh it off and that's been really powerful for both of us because actually so much of what we plan for our children, what we hope for our children doesn't happen or doesn't work out or we, you know, we try and create beautiful moments and they resist it or, you know, we, we just get it wrong and they, we don't, you know, put stuff in their way that's actually interesting to them. And I think I think between the two of us, we, we're quite resilient and we trust each other. And so this year has been has been kind of OK for us. You know, we we know that we've survived a moment like this before. And we know that we can talk about how rubbish it is and not be ashamed to say when we're, you know, fed up or when we need a break. You know, I don't I don't feel bad if he has to spend a day watching telly and on his screen because we're all overwhelmed. That's actually something that we need sometimes. And I think we've learned not to push ourselves too far. It's It's been really helpful. We, we feel like we're experienced in it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's still not not a, an amazing time for us, but um we've got some perspective. Mm. That's funny. I've had that same evolution in my house where we used to worry mm. about screen time, but now it's like, you know what? It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's just because, for the time you being. Have to well, do, absolutely. You have to do what you've got to do. And I mean, honestly, thank goodness for screens this year. What would we have done if this had happened 10 years ago and there wasn't Minecraft and Roblox as, as you know they're the important ones in my house I don't know about your house but you know and, and Skype to talk to grandma and all of those things I mean wow that has I am so grateful for technology very true uh, before we run out of time Catherine you know in your book you also talk about the importance of keeping your hands busy uh, what have you been doing uh, have you been learning to knit have you been doing more baking <laughs> Yeah, I'm back to my my terrible habit of pickling weird things. Um, so <laughs> I talk about this in the book that I my, I come from a big family of picklers. And uh, there's a kind of belief 
among us that you don't pickle anything that you've paid for that would be a waste of fresh produce so if you're going to preserve something it has to be either foraged or it has to have come to you for free um and so i got an over delivery of cucumbers from my supermarket the other week they put six in my in my shop instead of the one that i'd ordered and so I now have a huge quantity of pickled cucumber. <laughs> and of course, because we're locked down, like there's no one to eat it. So that's like that's stacking up around my house. Um, yeah, and I've been I've been making Seville orange curd and all sorts of weird alcohols, which is another bad habit of mine. Like I will preserve anything in vodka. I'm I'm currently working on a bay leaf vodka recipe, which I'm not sure has any utility in the real world, but I'm fascinated to know what, what it will taste like. Um, and I'm knitting a cardigan for my friend who's pregnant. So I'm quite enjoying that, although I'm a, I'm a very grumpy knitter and I, I'm not sure I'll finish it because I never finish very much. But I, the thought's there, right? I'm sending her <laughs> pictures as I go. <laughs> that might be all she gets. Well, we've really enjoyed speaking <laughs> with you today, Catherine May, again, author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. You can read an excerpt at wmpr.org slash where we live. Catherine, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've had a lovely time. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Hannes Brown composed our theme music. We hope you have a lovely, restful weekend. <laughs>